this is David Beeson, and we've reached chapter 68 of A History of England. Last time we saw William Pitt the Younger, with a lot of skullduggery in which the king himself played a prominent role, established in office as Britain's youngest ever prime minister. That ended the period of acute instability with five governments in two years that defeat in the War of American Independence had provoked in Britain. But what kind of country was it that Pitt took over? Well, the first empire the country had built, centred on the 13 colonies in America, was gone. Those colonies had been settled by people, most of whom were as English as the population at home. They therefore had bonds of shared culture with the mother country, making it reasonable for them to expect to be treated on an equal footing. The fact that they weren't gave rise to the problems in the first place. Those troubles led to a period of dislocation in British history which generated a lot of new ideas. One of the most important writers putting such ideas forward was the man seen by many as the father of modern economics, Adam Smith. So closely bound up with the troubles was his thinking that he decided to spend three years watching what he cordially referred to as the present disturbances unfold in America before publishing his great work, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations in 1776, coincidentally the year of the American Declaration of Independence. Smith is often seen as the personal property of the right wing in politics and economics. That's because of his commitment to free trade and the market. A phrase of his, ironically only used once in his book, has become something of a mantra to free market thinkers, the invisible hand. You may remember that back in chapter 42, we talked about Mandeville and his notion that what makes a society prosperous is the drive of individuals in it to amass and enjoy as much wealth as possible. Their self-centred desire to better themselves will, by creating more demand and therefore more wealth, also benefits society. Private vice is public good, according to Mandeville, in many ways the kind of thinking behind a modern slogan like greed is good. Mandeville's case had a lot of merit but was obviously worded to provoke. Smith took a much more measured approach but there's a basic similarity in their starting assumptions. To Smith, the baker doesn't work out of an altruistic desire to provide his neighbours with bread, but in the hope of selling enough to enable him to buy his beer, his food, his clothing and his other necessities. What the baker has done is specialise in one trade, relying on specialists in other areas to provide him with his other needs. That is to say that what we're seeing here is a division of labour, that turns society into something like a team, in which everyone has to do his specialised job well in order for everyone to flourish. This is what Smith calls the commercial society, as opposed to other types such as feudalism, with a large peasantry with small holdings tying them to the land and working only to guarantee their own subsistence and not for a surplus. In the commercial society, you are not self-sufficient, but you produce a surplus in one type of product, which you sell to enable you to buy the other things you need from other people. 
Most teams, however, need a captain to lead them to make sure that the players each play their role correctly, doing not just the right thing, but the right thing at the right level and the right time. In the market for goods, served by our baker as well as the brewer, the builder and the butcher, there is no captain. And yet, somehow the market works, in the sense that even a huge city such as London manages to provide each day about as much as its citizens consume. What guides the market to do that? Certainly it isn't government telling the baker how many loaves to bake, nor are there specialised individuals planning how the market should operate. Whatever makes the market work this way, it isn't an agent that any of us can see. That's where the notion of the invisible hand comes from. Somehow that invisible hand guides the market to offer about the right amounts of the right goods day after day, with no help from anyone to manage the process. So far, so very favourable to right-wing thinkers, with their general enthusiasm for free markets. But Smith also wrote about businessmen from any one sector of business. People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public, or in some contrivance to raise prices. These are words that could have been written by a radical of the left. In Smith's case, his view was that businessmen will always look for ways to eliminate competition and maximise profit. This isn't a condemnation of the individuals. It's merely a statement of the way their work drives them in a certain direction, serving the interests of business. They may even sincerely believe that what serves business interests serves the whole nations. But, unfortunately, those two sets of interests can often be diametrically opposed. Let's come back to the colonies as an example. One of the key measures adopted towards them by their mother countries, across the whole of Europe and not just in Britain, was a monopoly on trade. Colonies weren't allowed to sell their surplus products directly to third countries or to import goods from them, but always had to sell to or buy from their imperial masters. Those measures strongly reflected the interests of the merchants. The monopoly allowed them to buy cheaply from the colonies and sell expensively. That meant increased profits, but at the cost of the colonists, a serious injustice which contributed to the present disturbances in America. Smith claimed that to prohibit a great people from making all that they can of every part of their own produce is a manifest violation of the most sacred rights of mankind. In addition, according to Smith, the monopoly was also damaging to the home country. The high profits from the colonial trade attracted to it capital that might otherwise have been invested in manufacturing at home, generating jobs and producing goods of the country's own for sale abroad or at home. Smith points out that the monopoly on colonial trade had clearly done neither Spain nor Portugal any good, as both powers had declined substantially since the time of their imperial glory. But in Britain too it had done great harm. Let's just take one of the examples that Smith quotes. Britain imported many times more tobacco from the American colonies than it needed for its own consumption. It exported the rest. 
That trade was highly profitable, and so it attracted many merchants. That in turn meant huge amounts of capital were tied up in ships to carry tobacco, and therefore just in transporting goods, rather than in manufacturing new products that would generate jobs and additional wealth for the whole nation. Private profit was directly opposed to public good. Smith believed in genuinely free markets. Many modern commentators correctly see that as a stance against government intervention. What we should miss, though, is that Smith was at least as suspicious of market intervention by corporations. A market was only free if customers, dissatisfied with the quality or the price of one supplier's product, could freely go to another. But the natural inclination of corporations was to eliminate competition, in other words, to tend towards monopoly, and any such reduction in suppliers in a market limited customers' freedom of choice. Monopolistic behaviour distorted the market, and that always led to damaging results. Smith's solution for the present disturbances in America was to let the colonists make their own decisions governing trade. That would correct the injustice to the Americans, and it would also remove a damaging distortion to the British market. Once Britain had re-established cordial relations in America, it could set up a free trade arrangement to the benefit of both sides. Indeed, he argued, the benefit to Britain of a free trade agreement would be far greater than the monopoly ever produced. You may remember that the Earl of Shelburne, a fan of Smith's, worked towards this kind of outcome during his brief tenure as Prime Minister. He got the peace treaty with the Americans signed. Sadly, his government fell before he could make much progress on free trade. Now, when it comes to monopolistic attempts to distort a market, what's even worse than government intervention or corporate action is when government itself is guided by merchants or corporations so wealthy that they can exercise serious influence over politics. Remember Robert Clive, the adventurer in India? He came back so rich that he could buy himself a palatial estate and a seat in Parliament. His wealth, his ill-gotten wealth, gave him a voice in the legislature and a disproportionate say in the affairs of the nation. Corporations and government intervening in the market together? A disaster. Far from being guided by merchants, always driven by their own self-interest, Adam Smith warned that governments should be deeply suspicious of any advice coming from them. The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce which come from this order, Smith wrote, ought always to be listened to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, not only with the most scrupulous, but with the most suspicious attention. It comes from an order of men, Smith went on, whose interest is never exactly the same with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. Adam Smith may be the darling of the right for his commitment to free markets, but that very commitment left him deeply unhappy about the overmighty merchants whose wealth gave them the power to dictate to government and drive it to exert distorting effects on markets. I'm not sure the political right would be as keen on that side of Smith's views. 
If Smith loathed an arrangement whereby individual merchants or business corporations could dictate to government, it's hard to imagine anything worse than a corporation that became a government. If you've been following this series carefully, you will know that there was one such corporation in England, and it was exercising colossal power both in Britain and in the region of India which it dominated and even governed. Yep, we're talking about the East India Company again. The loss of the American colonies marked, as I said at the beginning of this episode, the end of Britain's first empire. That was an empire in which most of the subjects were of the same race, culture and religion as the mother country. It had, particularly with its monopoly of the colonial trade, served the business sector of Britain well, however damaging, as Adam Smith argued, that very monopoly might have been to the country as a whole. Business people who'd profited from that monopoly didn't see things Smith's way. They liked colonies whose trade they could monopolise, and they got their way. Maintaining trading monopolies became an aspiration as Britain turned its attention to the building of a second empire to replace the first. India would be the cornerstone of that new empire. Britain's holdings there were indeed managed by a private corporation driven only by its own commercial concerns the nightmare scenario in Adam Smith's view of economics. What made things worse was that these were people of a different race, different religions and a different culture from the British. If Britain had had so much trouble getting on with its own compatriots in America, how was it going to cope with the Indians? That's a delight we can keep until our next episode. Imagine the fun we'll have. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.